God speak to us through his living word. And, um, and today we're going to be looking at uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul given to us in 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles and want to get to that text, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And then if you're following along in your study guide that I made reference to, you should find it somewhere around page 121. And uh, so, but the topic today is holding fast. That means holding tight to the gospel of Jesus. You know, back in the, during World War II, is my understanding, the Japanese had a pretty effective propaganda uh, uh, tactic going on in which they were trying to uh, to deceive and to demoralize and discourage the American soldiers, particularly on the Pacific front. And uh, so they had a core of, of women broadcasters, Japanese women who were fluent in English, who would get on the radio and broadcast all across the Pacific front, even into the United States. And, and so their whole goal was to send out these programs with, with misinformation that would, that would misguide our troops, to deceive our troops, to try to demoralize our American troops, as many of them were in trenches, you know, in the Philippines and in Tokyo, I mean, the uh, islands of Japan, uh, warships or at, at airfields and, and making great sacrifices. And so night after night, these broadcasts would come telling the troops that you, they couldn't trust the government. Well, that's kind of believable today. But anyway, that beside the point, you know, they, they, they couldn't trust their government leaders because they were being deceived. They, they couldn't trust the military leaders because they were being given false information. They gave inflated casualty figures so as to try to discourage the troops. And if that wasn't bad enough, they would even do these dramas on, on radio, kind of like a soap opera or whatever, but about supposedly, you know, soldiers' wives or girlfriends back in the States who were cheating on them and, and, and you know, and, and, and being unfaithful to them. And so these troops are hearing this on a regular basis, and they were hoping, the Japanese were hoping to use that to deceive the American troops and to, to distract them from their, their mission. One of the, the most infamous of those women broadcasters was... Uh, a woman whose, whose real name was Iva Toquia Dequino. I can't say that again. Uh, but she was, known, she was known throughout the Pacific as Tokyo Rose. And, and she was probably the most effective in, in, in her broadcast. And so uh, she was kind of like, you know, the ace enemy of, of uh, American intelligence. And so after the end of the war, uh, it, it appears that uh, she... She was an American-born Japanese who joined in the propaganda tactics. And so she was trying to re-enter the United States after the war. That's brave or stupid, whatever. But anyway, she's coming back so she can resume a career in entertainment. And, of course, the FBI were waiting on her at the port. She was arrested. She was, she was convicted and sentenced to prison. And she was in prison for a while, then bailed out of prison. Tokyo Rose was eventually pardoned by one of the presidents. Go figure. But anyway, that's politics for you. But anyway, it's interesting how the enemy could, could take the, the tactic of misinformation and deceptive messages and to try to dissuade and to dis, dis, 
detract from the effectiveness of our American troops. Guess what? The number one enemy of the church uses very much the same tactic. He continually, when I speak of him, we know we're talking about Satan, the adversary. He continually raises up forces that will continually infiltrate the church. Number one, he wants to he wants to try to deter any lost sinner from coming to the truth. Satan does not want lost, unsaved people who are bound for hell to discover the truth of the gospel. So he does everything that he can to distract them with worldly, fleshly, lustful desires and material things, anything that will keep them from giving focus to the spiritual needs of their heart. But then Satan doesn't stop there because his tactic also involves attacking the body of Christ. And that's not a new phenomenon, folks. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. And we see this in Paul's letter to the church at uh, Corinth, 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. And so uh, as we look at the, the, the lesson, the message today, there featured in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, we're going to see uh, an appeal by the Apostle Paul for you and me as Christians to hold fast to the true, the one true gospel. You, you know the gospel, but hold to it. Be careful, protect it, especially against the messages, the false messages that the enemy will try to send to, to try to distract us. But not only that, we must rely on God's power to share the gospel. Of course, we know that we're given a great commission as God's people, and that is simply to go and make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all things Christ said that I've commanded you. And he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. So we don't do that in our own strength. You don't win people to Christ. You don't bring people to salvation by your own finesse and abilities and skills and, and, and strength. Folks, it, it depends upon a lot more than what we have to offer. We do it in the power of the Spirit of God. And so we rely upon the Lord to share the gospel and leave the results to him. And then finally, we must be bold, not just in warding off the false messages that come our way, but we must be bold to confront those false messages where they arrive and arise in our lives. So if you will, let's look first of all at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. And Paul, you've got to understand this relationship that Paul has with the church of Corinth. Maybe unlike the, the, his relationship with the church at Philippi, which he was so grateful and had such love and appreciated the prayers. And they had a, Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth, that church that he was, help, he was helpful in starting or probably had the initiative in starting there at Corinth, as was recorded in Acts chapter 18. Paul had a relationship with the church at Corinth, kind of like a parent does with the child. You know, on one minute, the little darlings, you just can't love on them enough. They just please you so much. You just want to squeeze them. Then the next minute, you want to pinch the head off, you know, because they just don't listen to you. They just, ah, oh, how many times have I got it? You know, Paul's like that. On one minute, he loves the church. And then the next minute, he's thinking, ah, how can you be so, you know? And so you see that coming out as Paul is, is writing to combat the presence of these false teachers who have infiltrated the church at Corinth. Now, Corinth was not the only church where false 
teachings had entered and penetrated. And you'll see that as you read throughout the book of Acts and, and of course, in the New Testament. But let's, let's just kind of read along and, and let the word of God speak to us. Paul's writing here, verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul says, I, I, wish would you, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness. And Paul's being kind of sarcastic here. Put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, to, to put up with me. Uh, Paul is basically, you know, earlier in chapter 10, verse 18, he's saying, you know, that we shouldn't ever commend ourselves. We shouldn't fall prey to the temptation to be lifting up and boasting about ourselves and commending ourselves. And yet Paul's about to do that. And so he's saying, I, I just wish you'd just be patient with me. It sounds silly to you all, but he says, just, just bear with me. And, and so Paul is, is, is preparing them for what he's going to be telling them. Paul, and this, this gives us a glimpse of how deeply he truly loves this church. Look at verse 2. Paul says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Now, that, those words may be a little different in your translation, but that's the, the gist of it. It's Paul is describing to the church at Corinth his zeal for their, their spiritual purity and, and for them fulfilling God's purpose. Paul has a, a real zeal. You know, as a pastor, I can identify with that. I, I mean, I, I love the Lord and I love what God does in my life and all. But, you know, God has entrusted me and the elders with the responsibility of being your spiritual shepherds. To guide you, to protect you, to, to try to encourage you and, and to see you grow and develop in Christlikeness. And, and there is kind of a, a zeal if a pastor's heart is truly with his church. You, you, you want to do everything you can and you become jealous of anything that might interfere with the church's growth and, and prosperity in, in being the people of God. And, and so Paul is saying, you know, with a with a godly jealousy, I, 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 I'm, I'm jealous for you because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. So you, you sense this language that Paul is using here. It's almost like he's assumed the role of the father of a bride. You know, I've had the privilege to, to, to officiate a number of weddings, to participate in a number of weddings, attending weddings. You know, and there's always that, that proud moment where the, you know, the, the, the father of the bride is walking his daughter down the aisle and getting ready to, you know, answer that, that pivotal question, who gives away this woman to be married to this man? And, you know, some reluctantly, some very freely, you know, will say her mother and I, you know. But but the idea is, you know, that, that dad has invested so much into this precious darling daughter of his. And now he's, you know, handing her over into the care of the man who will be her husband for the rest of her life. Paul is saying, that's kind of who I am. You know, Paul says, I helped to start the church. You were birthed under me. Under my ministry, you were spiritually birthed under my ministry. And now, you know, my goal is to, to get you ready, to wash you with the word of God and to have you be pure when you stand before the Lord one day. And, and now something has come to interrupt that, to, 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 to threaten that. And Paul is saying, that, that's not good. Because in verse 3, he says, but I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your minds may be seduced from a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. You know, the church or even God's people, not just the church, even as far back in the book of Isaiah in chapter 54, uh, verse 5, 
God speaks of Israel, the nation of Israel, as, as his bride. And now, and, and in the New Testament, we see references to that symbolic re- relationship between the body of Christ being the bride of Christ and Christ being the groom. All the way into the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 7, where, you know, John in that great prophetic vision sees the the, the body of Christ the, the, on that wonderful marriage day before the marriage supper. You know, the body of Christ is being presented to the groom, Christ. And, and she's pure and she's holy. In the robe of the righteousness of, of Christ. And so, you know, that language has, has, has been commonly used in the word of God to describe the relationship between the body of Christ, the church, and Christ himself. And, and Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm bothered because I see this sinister, evil force beginning to arise that, that is trying to seduce you, much as the serpent did with Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 through his smooth and cunning words. You know, what Satan say, uh, was saying to Eve made sense to her. It sounded like wisdom. And, and lo and behold, she was deceived. And there went the relationship with God, not only for her, but for her husband, Adam. Look at verse 4. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, that's important. Folks, there's only one Jesus as far as salvation goes. Now, I know in cultures all around, people continue to use the name of Jesus or something like that. And, you know, uh, but there's only one Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who came into the world as a God man, who who took on flesh and, and himself became man, yet fully God and, and died for our sins. and was buried and was resurrected and is at the right hand of God, the father. Paul says, be very careful if a person comes and he preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach. You make sure that you hold up the teachings of these other teachers who are coming on a circuit around to the churches and at the, you check and make sure that what they are telling you about Jesus matches up with what we have already revealed to you in the Holy Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he's, he's warning them to be careful of these false apostles. He says, be careful or you receive a different spirit. You know, sometimes different teachers would come around and they talk about this spirit doing these and, and, and oftentimes misled God's people to, to misuse the spiritual gifts and, and, and they, they, promote, they promote a different spirit as if the Holy Spirit was not the spirit of God. Folks, there is another spirit. Make no mistake about it. There is another spirit. His name is Satan. And not only that, he's not alone. Because John tells us in Revelation that when he rebelled against God, a third of the angels fell in that rebellion. A third of the myriad of angels. So all of them are known as demons. They're spirit beings. I said, there's all kinds of false spirits out there in the world, and they're constantly at work doing the work of the deceiver to attack not only those who are lost to keep them in spiritual blindness, but to attack the body of Christ. And so we see Paul is, is, is from his heart, he's, he's employing 
the church at Corinth to be on guard and to be very discerning about this different gospel that's being preached to them by these so-called apostles, if you will. He says, this is not the gospel that you have heard from us, and this is not the gospel you accept. You know, Paul, having been instrumental in starting the church, has a, a, a great emotional and spiritual investment in the church. And so as, as he's talking about the purity of the church, he's talking from two perspectives, and it applies to us today. Number one, a, a purity of our faith in terms of what you truly believe. You know, Paul is saying, be careful, because if you are giving your attention to anything other than God and Jesus Christ, if you are giving your devotion to anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the gospel of Christ, you're committing a form of idolatry. And Paul described that in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, uh, talking about how when we are practicing idolatry, substituting anything else as, as our focus of worship is idolatry. Anything that comes between you and me or you and or me and God is an idol. And Paul says for those who are worshiping idols, unbeknownst to them, they're worshiping demons. And so he's, he's challenging the church to go back and to reconsider the things that he has taught them, the things that he has explained to them, that at the core of the true gospel is this. Listen up. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, holy and righteous, came into this world according to a prearranged plan that God had established before the foundation of the world to rescue, to reconcile lost sinners back to God. Sinners who have fallen into sin under the curse of sin. And Jesus Christ came into this world to give his life, to die on the cross, to pay the price for the sins of those who would believe in him, believe that he is the Son of God, and repent of their sins, and turn to Christ by faith to commit to follow him, obediently practicing the principles of his word for the rest of their lives, those Jesus came to save. And every person that puts their faith and trust in that gospel, according to the word of God, will be saved. And that's the gospel. Anything other than that is not the biblical gospel. So Paul is striving towards purity of faith, but he's also striving towards purity of fellowship. As you read through 1 Corinthians and, and now into 2 Corinthians, Paul, as I said, Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth had its issues because they were kind of like a rebellious child from time to time. Back in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, Paul was having to deal with divisions in the church. You know, there's this, this group over here, this group over here, this one got along with this one, and this one, and it still goes on today. If we're not careful, the, the, the enemy will stir up differences in the church that will become divisions. So Paul had to deal with that with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul had to deal with immorality in the church. Lo and behold, they had a man who was having sexual relationships with his father's wife. And, and the, the church knew it. and they, were do, they weren't doing anything about it. Paul confronted them about that. They were some of the Christians that were in the church at Corinth were, were taking other Christians in the church to, to court 
for lawsuits. And Paul says, ah, you're not, you're not pagans. You're not, you, you can work out these things. You don't need to go before a secular judge. So you see the kind of headaches of this church. And finally now, if that wasn't good enough or bad enough, I guess I should say, in 2 Corinthians in chapter, beginning in chapter 11, Paul is saying, now I hear where these false apostles are coming and they're trying to dissuade you. You know, when we think about the church, we think about the bride of Christ, as I said. And and I like, if you're following in your study guide, he talks about the bride of Christ on page 122. Let me just read this statement. And there are some, some blanks for those that fill in the blanks. But it says the bride of Christ, the church is described as the bride of Christ, faithfully waiting for the day when Christ will return. And heaven and earth will become made uh, up of all believers from all tongues and nations. The church is that bride or the bride that Christ redeemed. And we are. We are the wonderful bride of Christ. And God has given only one gospel. I won't go back to it, but you can make a note in your margin if you want to. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 9. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 9. Paul talks about the true true gospel so you see it was and it was an issue then and it is an issue now you may ask well what other gospels are there folks there's all kinds of versions of gospels out there you may have heard of the social gospel where supposedly through your self-righteousness and and you know your good works you can achieve favor with god you know, and, and, and some people like the Mormons would promote a gospel that's based purely on works and merit, that you earn your way and you, you kind of graduate spiritually up. Islam has its own form of work-based gospel. And then there's the seeker-friendly movement that says, it doesn't matter if you're still in sin. Jesus loves everybody. Just come on in. And, you know, we want to make you feel part of the family. And so there are a number of false gospels out there. My goodness, there's a gospel being promoted that basically says, you know what? There are a lot of religions in the world. And God is such a God of love that, you know, they all somehow find their way to God. That sounds like the gospel according to Oprah. But anyway, uh, there are. So so you got to be careful. There are a lot of religious people. There are a lot of people promoting religious thought out there. And you think that what they say sounds good, but check it out against the word of God. So not only do we make a determination to hold fast to the one true gospel, but we also, as we move further in chapter 11, look at verse 1. We see where Paul helps us to understand we need to rely on God's power to share the gospel. Paul's going to now begin to expose these false apostles you've heard of false teachers false prophets false apostles those who are going around the circuit of the early church there in first century and they're actually saying hey just like peter and, and james and john and, and and paul we're apostles too well anybody can put a title on themselves you know it's amazing sometimes i hear some of these supposedly reverends and some of these other denominations and they got titles longer than you are you know, the right reverend bishop, you know, highest established, you know, most revered, you know, preacher. <laughs> Forget the titles. But they were going around. They were claiming themselves to be apostles. Apostles, But not only that, they said, we are it. We are the new and improved. You know, you've had Peter. You've had, you know, James and John, you've had Paul. The, we are the latest version. 
And Paul sarcastically there in, in verse, 11, uh, verse 5 of chapter 11, in verse 5, Paul sarcastically calls them super apostles as if to jab at them. He says, look at verse 5. Now, I consider myself in no way inferior to those, quote, super apostles. And it's simply because they were going around, they were puffed up, they were prideful, they were arrogant, and, and, and you know, because they thought they were God's gift to humanity. But Paul says, look, I'm not inferior to those guys. He says in verse 6, he says, even if I am untrained in public speaking, I am certainly not untrained in knowledge. Don't, don't lose track of that. Indeed, we have in every way made that clear to you in everything. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself to, uh, so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you. Now, I need to stop there for just a second because Paul's don't, he's, he's, he's uh, jumping over to, to another issue here. First of all, Paul says, I am just as qualified as these guys. You see, in the, in the Corinth culture, you know, in Corinth is a big trade city, a cultural center, and, and, and the people of Corinth prided themselves in bringing in for the entertainment of the people, some of the most elegant speakers, men who were trained in speech and in rhetoric and, 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 and delivering messages. And so, you know, uh, uh, this is what the people would have, have, have expected. And, and these false apostles fit the, 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 the bill perfectly. They were, many of them were trained speakers. They were polished preachers. They came in with, with, with knowledge of, of fine rhetoric and, and, and delivery. And, and so people just sat back, entertained and mesmerized by some of these powerful speakers. And Paul was saying, look, I didn't get that kind of training. I, I, I wasn't, I'm not a professional speaker. I wasn't trained in how to hold people's attention and, and, and be creative and, and, and delivering rhetoric. And, and no, Paul says, no. I, I'm trained in the thing that matters. And that is the knowledge of the truth according to the word of God. And he says, I, I'm skilled in this. Don't judge me by my elegance of speech, but make sure you listen to the content of what I deliver. And you know what? Paul could hold his own. He demonstrated that in Athens, there in Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus, which is like that public forum where they brought in all these philosophers and speakers. And Paul was speaking to a group of secular people, philosophers and, 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 and thinkers and, and religious experts. And, and, and Paul held his own. He, he was very clearly describing how the gospel pertained to the teachings of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of prophecies, and how indeed there was only one Savior, and that was the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who had died for the sins of humanity. So, you know, Paul had plenty of opportunities to, to demonstrate that though not elegant like the professional preachers or apostles, he certainly knew his stuff. And, you know, we need to be careful because sometimes we get wowed by people who are very polished and they, they, they you know, they got that big million dollar smile. Of course, they got about 
$2 million worth of dental work. But anyway, you know, and the hair is all groomed just right and wearing fancy suits and then a big arena and, you know, the spotlights on them and people, oh, oh yes, oh, oh, wonderful. And he's speaking with such elegance and uh, what's a motivational, you know, speaker. And, and, and every once in a while, he might mention the Bible. Every occasionally he might even mention Jesus. Rarely does he ever speak of sin. But, but, but people have been mesmerized, almost hypnotized. By the elegance of such a speaker. And, and, and Paul is saying that's not a true apostle. True apostle is coming from the content of the word of God. And they're not so focused on the presentation. But the content of the, content of the message that they're delivering. And you see what the Corinthians, the Corinthians had two basic expectations. Number one, you had to be really professional. You had to be a professional orator with rhetorical skills. And Paul says, first of all, that's not me. But I am the true apostle. I am the one that you need to listen to. The gospel that I have preached is the only true gospel. Don't let somebody else deceive you. And I say that to Christians today. Test out those who would seek to lead you. And make sure what they are teaching and what they are preaching levels solidly with the infallible, inerrant word of God and doesn't go off on a tangent of its own. Make sure that their emphasis is, is on Christ and Christ alone, not themselves. Make sure that they come from a heart of love as for, for the people of God and for sinners who are lost. Make sure that's the love of their heart, not love for money. Well, speaking of money, the other concern or the other expectation of the church at Corinth is not only that this, the, the preachers, apostles, be elegant and trained, but they also expected that these so-called professional apostles or preachers would be men who were worthy of their hire. Hirelings. In other words, you put on a good show and we'll pay you. You don't put on a good show, you don't get much. And where, where do people gravitate then when it comes to going to, well, entertainment today? You know, people find out where all the other people are investing their money and they'll say, oh, yeah, that's got to be a good band. Oh, that's got to be a good show, you know, because everybody else is paying top dollar. That's got to be a great sports team. Look at the cost of the tickets that people are paying. And Paul is saying, and this is where the, the sarcasm comes in there. He says or, or in verse 7, or, or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted? You see where Paul is saying, it's, it's not about me. The goal of my ministry is elevating you, holding you up, growing you, because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge. And you know that was Paul's ministry to Corinth. And he goes on to describe it. Paul did not charge them. They didn't have to support him. God worked that out. You know, when Paul says in verse 8, I robbed other churches by taking pay from them to minister to you, he wasn't actually, stick them up. <laughs> Give me your money. No, Paul was saying, look, do you realize that when I'm here teaching and preaching to you and help, preaching to you and helping you to grow, you understand that other churches are funding my ministry. 
I, they're not benefiting from my preaching. They're not benefiting, not now, from my teaching. But they're supporting me so I can do this for you. It's not as if I'm robbing them for your sake. Why? Because Paul didn't want to get lumped into that group of professional apostles who were charging exorbitant fees to, for people to hear their elegant messages. Paul says, when I was present with you and in need, I did not burden anyone. Since the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. And indeed, in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, we know that Silas and Timothy came from Philippi, which is in Macedonia, with a, a very generous off offering. That's why Paul loved the church at Philippi so much. They just, they loved Paul. They supported him. And Paul says, look, it's the church in, in, in Philippi, the brothers and sisters in Macedonia who supplied my needs, not you. He says, I've kept myself and will keep myself from burdening you in any way. We know that Paul, even though he had clearly distinguished in 1 Corinthians 9 that anybody who was committed to preaching the gospel and, and, and serving in, in ministry, they deserved to be reimbursed. Even Jesus, you know, authorized that. So, so it's not like Paul had anything against preachers or, or, or ministers being paid, but he was just simply saying you can't say that I'm here as a financial burden because we know that Paul, like others, were bivocational. Paul was bivocational. He was a tent maker. And, and, and so when he wasn't preaching and teaching, he was busy with his fingers, you know, knitting together skins to make tents to sell to help support himself. So he was somewhat self-supported. He said, listen, that's the love that I have for you. Now, what he was doing in doing that, he was exposing the false apostles. They didn't like it. The false apostles began to tell the church at Corinth, you know why Paul doesn't charge y'all? Because he doesn't think y'all good enough. He doesn't even love y'all enough to charge you. Yeah, we, you can tell how much we love you. Look how much we charge you. I'm being a little sarcastic, but, but yeah. But Paul, he says he loves you. He doesn't even love you enough to charge. And Paul ends that section in verse 11. He says, why? Because... I don't, he said, why? Because I don't love you? Paul said, you, you think that I'm not expecting you to reimburse me because I don't love you? It's the opposite. It's the opposite. I'm not a financial burden on you because I do love you. And you see, that exposed the false apostles because Paul revealed his true motive for ministry. It was love. And I'll say to any pastor or any minister serving in any church out there, I don't care what denomination, if their first desire in serving in ministry is what they can get out of it financially. And I know that may be a shock to some of you, but I, I've sat in enough preacher circles I've heard. One of the first, they don't talk about spiritual things. Now, what kind of package you got, brother? You know, what, what's your retirement looking like? Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. How many, how many paid, leave, paid leaves do you get? Yeah. How, what kind of a raise you get last year? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that. And I'm thinking, oh, what? go get a job. You want to make a lot of money, have benefits? Go get a job. Get out of the ministry. And Paul was exposing these false apostles, and they were trying to undermine him. But Paul says, uh-uh. Just look at their heart. Their heart. Traces all the way back to the wallet. And so, you know, 
and Paul is basically saying these guys rely upon their skills and their training and their elegance to, to try to present their gospel. But Paul says, not me. I rely on God. I depend on God. The Lord uses His Spirit, His Word, to enable me to deliver His gospel. Therefore, Paul says, I won't boast in myself. I love, I love 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where Paul says, you know, after he besought the Lord three times concerning the thorn in his flesh, and the Lord responded to him, you know, instead of healing, he says, you know what, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For in, my, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. And I love Paul's response. He didn't say, but, but Jesus, oh, that Lord, I, I need a healing. No, immediately Paul says, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. You see where Paul's dependency was? It wasn't in his own abilities. It was in his dependence upon the Lord. And so should it be for you and me. That's the message of encouragement to you and me as we seek to witness to the Lord. Folks, listen, it doesn't depend on your elegance of speech, how persuasive you can be. You know, it doesn't depend upon your personality, though I would encourage you to try to be nice. But, but the fact is, it's what's in your heart. You go into a witnessing situation, you depend upon the Holy Spirit. Pray from your heart, Lord, I really want to have the opportunity to share the gospel with this person, but I need you to do it in me. And God will do that. He will, he will provide you the ability to do that. And that's the word of encouragement. We can use the word of God by the spirit of God, and we can deliver the gospel in the power of God. We need to move on. Because not only does Paul help the Corinthians and you and me today to see that we must hold fast to the one true gospel and certainly rely on God's power, not ourselves, not our, our great qualities. And then finally, he teaches that we must confront those who preach a false doctrine. Look at verse 12. Paul says, but I will continue to do what I'm doing. What is that? preaching the gospel without charging, to humble myself before the people, to serve them so that I have the opportunity to share the gospel. He says, I'm going to keep on doing this in order to deny an opportunity to those who want to be regarded as our equals in what they boast about. In other words, Paul says, I don't want them to ever be able to say they are like me because they're not. Their motives are different than mine. Their message is different than mine. And Paul says, I'll continue to do this just like I'm doing it. The message is the same and my motives are the same. In verse 13, Paul says, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Paul, he's pulling off the gloves now. He's exposing these so-called false apostles. Number one, they weren't apostles. Apostles are those who have been sent by God authorized, commissioned by Christ or his church. And they were not that. And so Paul says, these are false apostles. 
They are deceitful workers. Who are they working for? Well, you'll see. Verse 14. And no wonder, as if it was a shock to the Corinthians. Paul says, about, no wonder. For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Their boss, the one that they're working for, he's a deceiver. Look how he deceived Eve in the form of a serpent. Look at the way that he presents himself often throughout the history of, of, of the Bible. You know, Satan over and over and over again appears in a deceitful manner to make himself appear as if he's good when the fact is he's rotten to the core. No wonder these guys are deceitful, he says. They're taking their cues from Satan himself who disguised himself even as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. We know that Satan is a deceiver. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he's the father of lies. <laughs> Imagine that. All falsehood goes back to Satan. And Paul, listen, some people might say, well, you know, Paul, you really ought to try to get along. You know, Paul, don't be so divisive, hard hit. You know, ease up a little bit. Sure, their message is a little different than yours, but you know, there's plenty of room, brother. Make your tent a little bigger. You ever heard that? <laughs> Folks, the gospel tent only stretches as far as the truth of the word of God. And anything beyond that, it's not the gospel. And Paul was not about to sacrifice the truth for the sake of so-called unity, as are the proponents of universalism out there in the world today. And so Paul is exposing his, the enemies of the church, these false apostles who are coming under, under pretense with their elegance of speech and they're mesmerizing the people and the people are gullible. Paul confronts them for the fact that they, you know, they're, they're, they're just soaking this stuff in. And the fact is, the gospel that these false apostles are teaching and preaching is not the true gospel. In fact, if they follow the direction of these false apostles who are liars and deceivers, they will be ultimately destroyed. Just as Satan is doomed for the fires of hell, so are those who follow him. You know, Paul was reminding, you know, the church of what Christ had already told his apostles in John chapter 10. He says, you know, they're false, they're false shepherds. They dress up in lamb and sheep skins. You know, they're nothing but wolves. He says, you know, they, they come, these false teachers, false prophets, false shepherds, they come for one thing. They are thieves who come to steal, to kill, and destroy. That is the goal. And yet Jesus says, not me. I came that they may have life and life more abundantly. That's the difference between the true apostle and a false apostle. And so it's our responsibility to make sure that we know the gospel, know what the gospel truly is so that we can tell other people the truth. Lord knows don't pass along something that's false. That would give people a sense of easy believism. Like, oh, you don't have to worry about doing everything, you know. 
you know, you don't have to worry about being perfect. Everybody sins. You know, Jesus loves everybody. So, you know, if you just say you're sorry and try your best, you know, that type of thing. Oh, you don't have to go to church. You know, that's just for religious people. You know, you don't have to follow the teachings of the scriptures. You don't have to give to support, you know, the church or God's kingdom work. Nah, nah. Listen to the words coming out of the past, a fourth century church father, Cyril of Jerusalem. It's in your study guide. He says, evil apes or mimics respectability. And tares do their best to taste or to look like wheat. But however close a similarity to wheat they have in appearance, their taste completely undeceives the discerned. In other words, tares look like wheat, but you don't want to eat bread made from tares because it's weeds, okay? We therefore need the grace of God, a sober mind and watchful eyes so as not to eat tares for wheat and come to harm for not knowing better so as not to mistake the wolf for sheep and be ravaged and so not to take the death-dealing devil for a good angel and be devoured. What powerful and true words, as ancient as they are, they still apply to our lives today. Jesus said himself in Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, verse 15, he says, the tree is known by its fruit. And folks, the church ought to be proficient as fruit inspectors. You hear somebody preaching and teaching on, on television, on the radio, or you go to a gathering and there's somebody preaching, you ought to have your Bible perched in your lap. And you track what they're saying and you determine, does it, does it, is it supported by what is taught in the Word of God? Anything else outside of this? It's not of God. That's how cults get established. Look at the fruit of that teacher or that preacher's life. Do you see humility? Do you see modesty? Do you see an unselfish love for the people of God? Do you see sacrificial service? Do you see someone who's putting the needs of others ahead of himself? Or do you see someone that is constantly begging for money and looking for ways to, to, to profit? Look at their life. Did they profess to be a follower of Christ? A servant of the Lord? And yet they're out there dabbling in the things of sin? Do they have a sordid reputation in the community? Listen, the church needs to be good fruit inspectors. Listen to the message. Know their motives. And understand who they truly are. Listen, your spiritual well-being and the salvation of the lost is too precious to be flippantly flipping the channels and listening to somebody and say, oh, that sounds good. I think I'll do that. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that's a sharp-looking preacher. I, I definitely want to buy his books. You inspect the fruit because God expects nothing less of those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. You know, when it comes to the gospel, there is no other Savior. There, there is no other gospel. I love what the Apostle Peter back in John's Gospel chapter 6 when so many people were deserting Christ because he was starting to talk hard about commitment 
dying to self and following him. And many of the multitude that were so mesmerized by his miracles and all, we saw that as we walked through the gospel of Luke, many of them were leaving. They said, well, forget that. That's too hard. Uh-uh. Too many demands, too much expectations. They were leaving. Jesus turned to his 12 and said, are you going to leave too? And I love what old Simon Peter, oftentimes the spokesman for the group said, Lord, where can we go? Where would we go? Only you have the words of life. Same way with us, folks. Apart from the gospel, the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrection, and resurrected and ascended to the Father and soon coming again in judgment. Listen, apart from that, there is no other gospel. There is no other place a person to turn to. Stick with the truth. Amen? Hold to the truth. Hold fast and rely upon God. And let the Lord